After the miscarriages, I thought a lot about abortion, and so I want to talk about abortion today. And uh, up front, I, now that I have your attention, uh, I want to say that this sermon isn't about politics, even if some of you would like it to be about politics. This sermon will not be uh, an effort to make you vote in one way or another. That's illegal for me to do, first of all. And second of all, it's, it's not who I am as a pastor. Uh, it, my goal, my responsibility, uh, the, the calling that I have in life is not to help you vote the way that I think you should vote or that other Christians think you should vote, but really to help you develop spiritually, to help you become more like Christ. And I do think that has an influence on how we vote, but, uh, but I will never get up here on stage and try to get you to vote in one way or another. And so uh, now that we have that out of the way, uh, shortly after the miscarriages, I, I remember this so well. I was actually standing in the shower. It's where I have my best thoughts. And something hit me. And it was like uh, losing our unborn babies really, really hurt. It was like losing a family member. And the truth is, it, it felt like losing a person. Uh, somebody that I had known even. Somebody that I had grown close to. And it was interesting because... Because I've always believed that life begins at conception. That's always something I've grown up in the church and and it's always something that I've believed. I've probably said a time or two. But it's not something that I had really like felt on a, on a deeper level. And I think for the first time after these miscarriages, I felt it. And uh, Most people believe now that life does begin at conception. Uh, the government's definition attests to the fact that life begins at conception at fertilization. According to the National Institute of Health, fertilization is the process of a union of two gametes, ovum and sperm, whereby the somatic chromosome number is restored and the development of a new individual is initiated. And that's the government's definition of when life begins. And the Bible seems to say that life begins at conception. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian, you've been around church, you're like, yes, yes, yes. And if, if you're not, then you're like, well, and you've, you've ever argued biblically against the idea of abortion you're like well that's poetic and, and that's generally the the kind of comeback to that verse being in the bible for people who say that personhood doesn't begin at conception and and i would agree that it is poetic it's not scientific let's be clear about that but poetry teaches lessons right like if you offer a love poem to somebody the the message is i love you and here david as he writes this is trying to to say something even though he's saying it poetically and i think what he's saying is, is God knew me even, even before I was born, and it seems to say life begins at conception. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Again, let me be clear, this is specific to Jeremiah, but it seems to be saying about Jeremiah, at least one person, that God knew him even when he was in the womb. Luke one forty one says this, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting because Mary had come and she was pregnant with Jesus, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled 
with the Holy Spirit. Again, it's a special circumstance. Mary is pregnant with Jesus, like the Jesus. And, but the baby inside of Elizabeth leaps, and it seems to say that there was some type of spirit already in John the Baptist as we know him today, as he was in his mother's womb. Now, here's the thing. Scientifically and biblically, I've always believed that life begins at conception. But to be just 100% truthful, I didn't really feel that way until these babies. In fact, again, most people believe life begins at conception. The only real question when it comes to the topic of abortion is whether or not personhood begins at conception. That's the real issue if you pay attention to the debate between pro-lifers and pro-choicers. It's whether or not personhood begins at conception. And truthfully, I hate to say this, but I've always said, thought that life begins at conception, but... I think I've always acted like personhood begins sometime later. And I really recognize this in the way that, that we talk about and think about, even within the church, miscarriage. And the truth is, sometimes when it comes to miscarriage, the way we talk about abortion is not acceptable for these babies who didn't die by somebody's choice, these babies who died by chance or whatever it might be. Think about this, if I were to have named our babies, we kind of did, but, but if I would have just said, hey, I named my unborn babies, you would have kind of looked at me like that was weird. Or what if I would have said, hey, we're having a funeral for our babies who died before they were 12 weeks old. You would have been like, I'm not, I'm not going to go to that. That feels a little bit awkward. Read a blog post the other day that said something along the lines of, we grieve the babies who die from abortion but we tell people to get over the babies who die through miscarriage. And I think what it is, somewhere inside of you, even though that you want to say, hey, life begins at conception, you believe life begins at conception, science seems to point to life beginning at conception, the Bible seems to point to life beginning at conception, somewhere inside of you, I think that maybe you don't really think personhood begins at conception. And as our babies died and I sat, I stood in the shower and I was just processing like what I was going through and trying to deal with my own emotions, it was like, wow, I really lost a baby. Some might say, well, no, you didn't lose a baby. You lost like the hope of a baby and, and you lost like the dreams that come along with your, your wife being pregnant. And here's what I'd offer to you, and I don't like to admit this in Christian circles because it's really looked down on. I don't care if I ever have children. I, I love the babies in this church. I love my niece more than any person on this planet probably. I'm sorry if you thought I loved you the most. But, but I, I really am not a person who needs to have a baby. I used to think I really, really wanted a baby, and, and at some point in life it was like, I really, really like being able to go out to dinner whenever I want to. And I know, like some of you are awkward laugh because you can't say that, especially around Christians, but it's just the flat out truth. I, I like to be able to go to sporting events when I want to. I relish the idea. When Bryn got pregnant, I was like, this is awesome. I am excited about this. This is great. I started thinking about T-ball and about how he's going to be my retirement plan by making millions of dollars someday. And I was super pumped about that. But the truth is, nothing in me grieved the loss of a future with a baby except for that there had been a life present in my wife. That is really 
what I grieve. And again, I don't admit that all the time, but when it comes to, I know what people's response will be, you didn't really grieve a baby. It wasn't the person. It was simply the idea and the dream and all of that. I don't have that dream. My wife has that dream more than I do, but, but that's not a thing to me. I love going to play basketball on Saturday mornings. I love being able to go out to dinner whenever I want. I love my niece. I, I love the kids in this church. And right now, at this point in life, and I'm 30, so I'm pushing like that childbearing age, you know? I, like, I, I, yeah, it's, you know, like my friends have all had babies. And none of it like compels me like, oh, I need a baby. I got to have a baby. I got to have a baby. I think like I need to like work harder at church and I need to go exercise and I really, 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 really want to be able to go to the beaver games with the Bartress whenever they call me. <laughs> now that you think I'm a horrible person, um, it's just the truth of it. And so for me, it was this, this eye-opening moment because I, I wasn't grieving the loss of some future. I was really grieving the loss of a person. I never would have expected it, to be honest with you. I, 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 just knowing myself and knowing how I thought of things, I, I just would have expected, I would have really expected to kind of go, well, this sucked, but at least they weren't older. I would have never admitted that, but, but I felt it deep in my heart that I had lost somebody, a person. My thoughts did not stop there. My thoughts quickly turned not just to the fact that life really begins at conception, but to the, to the fact that we had lost our babies and there are millions of women in our country who have chosen to kill their babies. And my thoughts didn't go to politics. Maybe yours would have. That's not how I am made. My thoughts went to mercy. And I thought, how horrible it is that I have lost children, but how terrible it must be for those who have chosen to give up their children. The statistics point to the fact that it's pretty terrible for those women. Now, with anything that, uh, any time abortion is brought up, let me be clear about this, every single statistic, every single Bible verse, every single thought, every single feeling is always debated. And so I'm going to give you statistics, and I tried hard to make sure that these statistics were, were solid, and, and if you want to see where they came from, you can go to uh, Uversion, and you can look us up live there, and there's a link to, uh, on your smartphones, there's a link to my full notes, and it will have where the, these statistics came from but I'll just be up front they're they're hotly debated and and one of the main debates over these statistics is whether the women who choose to abort would have had these statistics be true of them anyway and so the question is not whether the the question becomes does the abortion and the choice to have an abortion to take the life of your own baby result in these things or do you choose to have those abortions because these things are present in your life? That's the main debate here. And here's what I offer to the people who want to debate that question. Either way, either way, these women have hurts and struggles. I mean, if these things are leading to the abortion or they are caused by the abortion, it does not matter to me because I look at these women the same and think, wow, that is terrible. Listen to this. Over 20 studies have linked abortion to increased rates of drug and alcohol use. Abortion is significantly linked with twofold increased risk of alcohol abuse among women. A review of the medical records of 56,741 California Medicaid patients revealed that women who have had abortions were 2.6 times more likely 
than delivering women to be hospitalized for psychiatric treatment in the first 90 days following abortion or delivery. Depressive psychosis was the most common diagnosis. Rates of psychiatric treatment remained significantly higher for at least four years. Researchers in Finland, not the most conservative country in the world, if if anybody's going to be fair about their statistics, it's probably Finland, Uh, and they have identified a strong statistical association between abortion and suicide in a records-based study. They found that the mean annual suicide rate for all women was 11.3 per 100,000, but the rate for women following abortion was 34.7 per per 100,000, three times higher. The suicide rate associated with birth by contrast was was half the rate of all women and less than one-sixth the rate of suicide among women who had had abortions. Now maybe you're like me and you're not much of a numbers person. Numbers are just numbers to me. I know we have some numbers people in this church, and so those statistics will, will be good for you, but I'm, I'm, I'm like a story person. I can never remember a person's name. Uh, I, I'm terrible with birthdays, but I, if you tell me your story one time and about life and, and how it's gone and where you've been, I will remember probably every single detail of what you tell me. And I actually know two people quite well that have had abortions and... Um, feel pretty close to these people and one of them I asked to write something because I was going to do this sermon and and so I want to read you from from her statement uh, just uh, several things that she said I should preface this with the fact that I didn't accept Jesus into my heart until I was 17 years old my abortion was when I was 15 most teenagers struggle with something whether it be drugs or alcohol or maybe it's stealing or cheating mine was boys I really never had that many moments where I didn't have a boyfriend. Until I started going to church, I really didn't have a lot of self-confidence. When a boy likes you, it boosts that confidence. Because of this weakness, I pretty easily ended up having sexual relationships with most of my high school boyfriends. Of course, somewhere along the way, I got pregnant. A teenage pregnancy comes with so many raw emotions. Disappointment was a huge one. Disappointed in myself and incredibly afraid of the disappointment that others would feel, mainly my mom but teachers, coaches, friends as well. I was scared and disappointed. I was scared and disappointed and lonely. Lonely was a big one as well because I didn't share this with anyone. I remember the day like you remember a dream. You remember the emotions really well, but somehow the faces are blurred. How you got from point A to point B is a little hard to recall. The memories are scenes in your mind like watching a movie. I remember saving lunch money for weeks. I remember trying to save about $300 because I didn't have an income. It would cost only $300, they told me. I remember writing myself a note to get out of my class to go to the doctor. The fact that this worked, that I wrote, this is a parenthetical statement, that I wrote a note for myself to leave school and go to the doctor scares me now. How many other girls in our communities also so easily left school to get an abortion? My boyfriend at the time didn't want to come into the building. I went in alone. I sat in the waiting room. It was small, dark, trailer-like. They called my name and I nervously got up. I thought this was it, but no, the nurse just came, just handed me one of those little ketchup-like at a fast food restaurant. The little holders is what she's talking about. This one had a pill in it. She told me to take it. It would help me relax. I didn't have this thought then, but now all I can think is they gave me a drug, who knows what it was, I think Valium or Vicodin or something, without even giving me a health exam, without asking my health history. This is awful. This is a well-known organization and real doctors, and they can't even act like real doctors. Anyway, I took the pill, so this is probably why I don't remember much about the emotions. So I ended up 
in a room for the procedure. All I remember during the procedure was that I cried, like the kind of crying you do when you find out someone you love just died. The uncontrollable, no holding back crying. Some strange nurse was holding my hand. It was loud in there and I was crying. I was so lonely. I was so disappointed. I was so scared. It was over. I was taken to a chair, kind of a lazy boy-like chair, and sat there for a while by myself. Given another pill, sent out the back door. My boyfriend took me home. I slept the rest of the day until it was time to go home from school. She goes on to say, as a teenager, I don't think I had a full understanding of what it meant to get an abortion. I was more worried about my future and what people would think of me. When I, what I felt most guilty about for a long time was not sharing with anyone else that was close to me. However, as I matured, the guilt really set in. Abortion is one of those topics that gets brought up a lot. And so every time I hear someone mention it, it is a reminder of the life that I took. The most significant remorse I felt with respect to this is when I had children. I can't really even put into words how much I'm in awe of my children every day. They are beautiful and joyful and God's best gift to me. So of course, I still feel a deep loss when I think of the kind of life I ended with that precious baby of mine. And then she says, this is what I really want to focus on today. I really feel that the general feelings towards abortion in the church always made me afraid to share about it with anyone. I know God forgave me, but, what, but would Christians forgive me? That's something I lived with for quite a while, and I guess even now. I've always had the impression that all sins are the same as far as seriousness. Sin is sin. Christians make people who have had an abortion feel that this is way worse than anything they've ever done. Like there's a rating scale. My sin is bad for sure, but yours is worse kind of scale. Maybe on a moral level, yes, it's easy to understand this thinking, but in the end, aren't we fallen, and don't we all deserve forgiveness no matter what the sin? And if God forgave me, then why can't my fellow believers? If you look at the media aspect of it, Christians are just as hardcore anti-abortion as they are anti-homosexuality. It's very easy to feel outcast if you are in either of these two categories, even if you are searching for forgiveness and repentance. It honestly makes me feel a little angry, some of the pro-life ads and speeches, posting on Facebook, etc. Let me say two things about my friend's statement. First of all, I don't think that she's accurate in saying that all sins are the same as far as seriousness. Lust and adultery both make you guilty, but one is more serious as far as its consequences go, and I really do believe how God ultimately looks at our behaviors in our life. So that's the first thing. That, that I want to say. And, and the second thing that I want to say is that I think her synopsis of the way in which Christians interact with the topic of abortion and how they make people feel who have had them is absolutely accurate. Now let me be upfront and say that I felt this way a long time. I'm going to examine Jesus and I, I think how Jesus would have treated people who, who had abortions, but I want to say upfront that it's something that I've thought about and I've felt a long time. I look at the way that Christians talk about abortion. I look at the way that Christians interact with the topic of abortion. And I really think that it is unloving and, and ungentle and it is unmerciful and it is ungraceful. I remember uh, when I was uh, in college, I saw a water bottle as I was sitting at Starbucks. And this water bottle had two things on it. It had a Christian radio station and it had the words, abortion is mean. And it just, it's st I'm still mad about it. I was talking to John about it not very long ago and it still makes me mad because I'm thinking like, what are you accomplishing? 
All you're doing is making it so that nobody who's ever had an abortion wants to go to your church or have a conversation with you. And I guarantee you haven't changed one person's vote by your abortion is mean bumper sticker that's on your water bottle. And so I'm just saying, I'm biased up front, to be honest with you. Let me just be clear. I'm trying to be as open about this as possible. But I really, really don't think that saying mean things and acting like we don't love people is ever going to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish as far as voting goes. I think that when we talk about abortion, it is completely void of love and mercy and grace. And what I'm discovering more and more is I don't even think it, it's loving towards the babies who are dying. What I, and this is just my anecdotal evidence. It's what I read on Facebook. It's what I see on people's cars. It's what I hear people say. I don't even think that most people who are fighting against abortion care about the babies who are dying. They care about winning an argument. Look, I've already told you, before you get mad at me, I came into this sermon thinking, it's not my goal to make everybody mad, but it's not my goal not to, but I'm gonna try to avoid it as best as possible. I've already said that more than ever, I believe personhood begins at the point of conception. But at the same time, I just examine the people I know, the people that are Christians, and I think the way you talk and the way you interact with this subject suggests to me that you really don't care about the babies or their mothers. You really care about winning a vote. It's just a competition at this point, like a basketball game to you. And I think there's three major problems with this. And this is really where this is coming from. My heart today is just really coming from, from this. I think it keeps people away from church, perhaps away from Christianity as a whole. I think there are people like my friend who will never accept Jesus because they look at the way we talk about certain sins, abortion being one of them, and they think those people aren't very loving. Those people don't care. Those people really aren't trying to understand. or They don't really know what these people are dealing with and how they feel about themselves. They don't really care at all. I'm not going there. I mean, just think, just pause with me before you're angry at me and, and just, just think like, You've heard abortion talked about a lot in Christian circles. If you're a Christian that's gonna get mad at me, if you're one of the people who's gonna get mad at me, you've heard it talked about a lot. Now I want you to picture, what if, what if somebody who had an abortion had walked in? You think they would feel like these people love me, these people care about me, these people want what's best for me, these people don't want me to have another abortion. You just think, wow, they don't like me, they don't want me here, they want me to go somewhere else. So one of the reasons that I'm putting myself out there in this sermon is because I think we and the way we interact with the topic of abortion are keeping people out of the church and maybe even away from Jesus. Here's another thing. I think the way we interact with abortion causes people who have committed certain sins to feel like they can never be forgiven. I know from conversations in this church that there are certain people here that, that feel that they cannot be forgiven for the things that they have done. Not abortion, but other things. And I think that part of that is the way that we talk about certain sins. So that when a person is committed, they're like, wow, I just, I can't get over this. I mean, I believe Jesus and he died for me and I believe I'm going to heaven, but he's not, nobody's gonna forgive me for this. I can't express it to the other people in the church. I can't open up about this. I can never find the healing and the comfort that I need because I'm not gonna share it with any of those people because look how they talk about certain sins and they might feel the same about mine. I really think that the way we talk about abortion, the way we interact with it, keeps people 
from developing in their relationship with Jesus because they get a bad view of him and his forgiveness and the way that he wants to show us love and mercy. And here's the last reason. It isn't Jesus-like. The way that we talk about abortion is not the way that Jesus acted towards sin. And today I want to show you a passage of scripture that I think shows this quite well. Luke 7, 36 through 47. And it's a story that shows us how Jesus treated people that had committed sins. And here's the key. Even sins that were socially unacceptable. The types of sins that people would look at others and go, oh, they did that. At least I'm not like them. And here's what we see. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now to get you up to speed on this story, really important that you understand who the Pharisees were. They were the the most conservative people at the time, and that meant a lot of good things, but it also meant some bad things because they took it too far. They were very legalistic. They looked at people and they said, well, I'm not like you. I'm way better than you. And so they'd walk around letting everybody know that they were praying and they were spiritual and that they were awesome and they were good. They weren't like the tax collectors and they weren't like the prostitutes and they weren't like the sinners in town. They were something better. They are the people who hated Jesus the most while Jesus was alive because Jesus didn't always say things that aligned with what they thought and they felt and they didn't like that Jesus hung out with certain types of people. Maybe the same types of people that we don't like to hang out with today. And then we read, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So, and this is just one of the craziest statements in all the Bible. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now look, if your life is labeled, labeled by sinful, then you have pretty open, pretty out there sins, right? I mean, I think that even the Pharisees would have said, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm just not as bad as that lady. I'm just not as bad as the people who have had an abortion. I'm just not as bad as, as those people. But this lady, I mean, her life is labeled by sinful even like thousands of years later, even as recorded in Scripture, And so she had some sins in her life that were pretty open, pretty visible to the rest of the world. She was doing things that were really, 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 really bothering the religious people that the religious people would never do. And it says, and this is is mind-blowing. She learned that Jesus was eating there, and so she shows up at the Pharisee's house. Now, you you just gotta think. Like, these people... The Pharisees, she knows that they hate her. She knows that they look down on her. They probably have made comments to her. They've probably told her how much of a sinner she is, how bad she is. They've probably made her feel bad every time she's tried to show up at the temple. But yet, and this is mind-blowing, when she hears Jesus is there, she's so drawn to him that she shows up at this house. I mean, this is like like a a woman showing up that has had multiple abortions at at a rally where people are planning to picket the next abortion clinic. Like, hey, I'm here, and you all know what I did. That's uncomfortable. But, But she 
was so drawn to Jesus that, that she came there. I mean, that is, that is a huge, huge, huge statement because it says something about who Jesus is and was. It goes on. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So here she is. She's worshiping Jesus. She's down at his feet. She's cleaning his feet because, as we'll see in a minute, the Pharisees had not done any of this. This is like, wow, wow, wow. I mean, the most, the perfect, the only perfect person that has ever lived. And she feels comfortable enough and compelled enough to fall at his feet and wipe his feet with her tears and her hair. What does that say about Jesus? And how merciful and how gracious he was and how drawn to him people were, even people who were sinners. I mean, think about like the most awesome person you know. Like they, they don't seem to mess up. They do, I'm sure, but you don't know about it and their house is always clean and, and, and they, they have the, the hottest wife and that's me. I know you're thinking about me right now, but um, and, and like they, they're like incredible and you just, and they know everything that's wrong with you and you just feel comfortable showing up at their house and just, just humbling yourself before them. You wouldn't do that most of the time, right? You'd be like, they don't want me to come over. They don't want any part of me. I mean, they have it all figured out. And Jesus had it all figured out. This woman comes to where he is and then starts worshiping him by wiping his feet. And then exactly what she expected happened. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now he's just thinking this, but I'm sure he's showing it with the way that his body language is going and the way he's looking at her. And I'm sure this this is coming out quite clearly, right? Generally, when we think things, we're not very good at hiding things, right? And it says, if this man were a prophet talking about Jesus, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I'm sure this was every step along the way, her very fear, Like, I'm drawn to Jesus. I need the grace of Jesus. I want to be where Jesus is. He's right next to me. This is my opportunity. But every step, it was like, oh, but the Pharisees are there. Oh, but this is Simon's house. That's his name. Oh, they're going to judge me. Oh, they're going to look down on me. Oh, they might say mean things to me. Oh, I don't know if I can do it. And she did it anyway. And the Pharisee who invited Jesus, I'm sure in his body language and the way he's looking at her, says, man, I can't believe Jesus is letting, him do, or letting her do that. This is a sinner. This is one of those bad people. It's one of those people we don't interact with as religious people. And then Jesus says this awesome thing. He answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. I think it's funny he said suppose, because you didn't really want to answer that question, right? I suppose you know that moment. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them away with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she, but this woman, from the time 
I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. He flips it on this guy. He says, look, this woman is a sinner. So are you. Maybe her sins are more obvious, but you know what that means? That means that she has a greater capacity to love me. And she has demonstrated that today. And Jesus says, her sins are forgiven. Her sins are forgiven. Now here's, this is, this is what I want you to hear. I mean, as you look at the way that Jesus interacted with this woman, the love that he showed her, the fact that he says she can love me more than the religious people who have never done the bad sins, the real things that we don't like in society. He looks at her and he shows her love and there's some things that we can learn. And let me, let me just add something. Let me just throw this out there before I say these three things. This is, in that society, the very type of woman who would have had an abortion. You might think abortion is new, 1970s, but the truth is abortion is thousands and thousands of years old. And abortion was actually seen as okay in certain circumstances in the Jewish uh, culture of Jesus' time and very much okay in the Roman world at Jesus' time. Now, I firmly and wholeheartedly believe Jesus would, would tell you that abortion is bad and it's not something you should do, uh, and, and Jesus would be very much against it. Let me make that clear. But yet the type of woman who would have had one, Jesus shows love to. And so here's the, here's the three things that I, I just think are so important when it comes to the topic of abortion, and that is this. Please don't get one. I just, I, I want to say that and these sermons all go online and if you have somebody in your life if you, that just, that they're at that place and they have an unwanted pregnancy and they're thinking like, I, I don't know what to do. This is hard and, and they're not Christians even. I, I just, I, more than anything, I just want to say, please don't get one. You will feel when it is over, that personhood begins a conception. You will feel it no matter what society teaches you. You will feel it no matter what the world says. You will feel it no matter what you think today. And you will absolutely regret it. And, and I want you to hear, I just with all my heart, I want you to hear, whether you're sitting here today or, or you are a person listening online, I want you to hear this. Please, please, please don't get an abortion. And I wanna make this promise to you. I wanna make this promise. If you're a person in that situation and you are struggling with those feelings and you just feel desperate because that's what leads to abortion and you don't know what to do, then come to our church. Because in this church, I believe you will find people who will love you and who won't judge you for having those thoughts, for thinking about that, for thinking that that's an okay choice to even make. And we will love you and we will be here for you and we will help you get through this time in your life. I promise I promise whether nobody in my church comes behind me, but I absolutely know that they will. Please, please, please do not get an abortion. That's what I, I just, I want, I want the whole world to hear that. 
And there's over 200,000 abortions a day, not a day, excuse me, a year in our country. And, and, and I just want every person who's in that situation, I'm not saying it's like easy. And Christians, like there was other statements that I left out for my friends, statements where, where she says, look, Christians act like it's just the easiest choice in the world. Like, oh, I'm gonna get an abortion because it's just an easy thing to do. I realize that that's a hard decision and that you're in a tough place, but please don't get an abortion. Come to our church, email us, call us. The second thing that I, that I want all of you to hear is this. If you've had an abortion or you've done some other sin that you are having trouble forgiving yourself of, then, then know this, Jesus loves you and Jesus will forgive you if you accept him as your savior. This is what we think about Jesus. We think that Jesus was God's son. He was in heaven and he came to earth because the world, every single person in the world was living in sin. And so Jesus came out of heaven, his very comfortable, very nice, very glorious place so that he could come to earth to save people from his sins. And he did that by living a totally 100% sinless life, his whole entire life. He didn't do one thing that was wrong or disobedient to his father in heaven. But at the end of that life, he died on a cross. And on that cross, all of the punishment for all of our sins, everything that you've done wrong, no matter what it is, no matter how bad it is, no matter if it's abortion or homosexuality or anything else that you hate to admit to people because you're afraid that the Christians will judge you, he died for all of it. And then after three days, he rose again on a day that we call Easter and we'll celebrate in a few weeks, conquering death forever. And if you choose to accept that gift, then there is no sin that you need to hold over yourself for the rest of eternity. There is no sin that you will not be forgiven of. You may have consequences of your sin. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. God may in some way punish you in the short term in order to help you get out of that sin, but there is nothing that God will not forgive if you have repented and you have moved past it. And in fact, Jesus is saying quite clearly in our verse that we looked at today, those sins, those deep, deep sins that you don't wanna share, that you're embarrassed about, that you don't feel like you could ever get over, they grow your capacity to love me. They grow your capacity to understand how much I've forgiven and how merciful and how gracious I am to you. And what I want you to do, if you're a Christian, is I want you every time you go, oh, I need to feel guilty about this thing that I did five, 10, 20 years ago. I need to feel good about it. Then just pause. You have my permission and I'm a pastor so I know everything. Just pause. That's a joke if you're a visitor. And go, I'm starting to feel guilty but I'm gonna change that around. I'm gonna flip that around and I'm gonna worship and love Jesus even more today because of how great his mercy is for me. And if you're not a Christian, you are guilty. And you should feel guilty every day of your life. And the only resolution for that guilt, the only resolution is to give yourself to Jesus, to say, I believe that you came from heaven to earth. I believe there's no other way that I can get this, this guilt forgiven. I, I believe there's no other way that I can have peace and joy when I've done this. And, and give yourself to Jesus, believing in what he did and offering your life to him. And, and this is my promise, he will forgive you. And you will feel that forgiveness deep in your soul. And this is the last part. 
If the church is the representation of Jesus on earth, which the Bible tells us it is, then people with heinous sins, heinous sins even, should feel loved and accepted by the church. Now, I don't know what this looks like. I'm not telling you, and just let me be clear about this, that we shouldn't do our best to rid the world of abortion. I want all abortion to go away. I want it to stop. I want it to be done. I want it to be over because I want those babies to live the lives that God has has created them for. I want them to live so that the the mothers don't have to deal with the regret and the pain and the grief that, that comes from their abortions. I want every single baby to live. So don't get me wrong there. But this is what I need you to think about and it's not an answer and this is two weeks in a row where I've, I, I've had parts of my sermon at least where I don't give you an answer, I just give you kind of a question. Uh, and, and it's this. I mean, are you interacting with abortion and the topic of abortion and other sins in a way that compels people to show up in church and to accept Jesus as their savior? Or are you interacting with them in a way that makes people want to run away from the church because they go, well, if they know what I've done, then they'll never accept me. If they know what I did, then I can never be a Christian. If they know what I did. And I just, a couple of questions that I, that I just want to ask and, and, and I hope they'll get you going down the right path. I don't know what it looks like. I don't have an answer. I'm not giving you an answer today. I don't know how this changes the Facebook posts or your bumper stickers or the shirts you wear. I don't know what it looks like to be honest with you. I just know that it needs to look more loving and more gracious and more like Jesus. So here's, here's two questions. Do you pray for women who are considering abortions and the babies inside of them? Or do you just push a political agenda? I mean, if you're just like God change Roe versus Way, if that's, like, if that's it, just change that, make abortion illegal, if that's your only prayer, then I would question whether you're really caring about these people or just trying to win an argument. Now, that's a fine prayer. I'm not discrediting that prayer at all. But, I, but if you're not praying for women in our world who are considering abortions and for the babies inside of them, then maybe you're not treating this topic correctly. And here's the other one. What are you doing to help people know, accept, and experience the love of Jesus? I believe that the best way to stop abortion is to help people know Jesus as their savior because it changes the way that we choose, correct? I mean, if you're a Christian, you know that your choices on a daily basis are affected by Jesus. And so whether we have a right to choose or not becomes a non-issue for the person that wants to choose the way Jesus wants them to choose. And so my question is, what are you doing tangibly? What are you tangibly doing to lead people to a relationship with Christ? And if you go nothing, then I ask, do you really care about those mothers and their babies? Do you really care about them if you're doing nothing to lead a person to Christ? If you're doing nothing to show the world that there's a Savior named Jesus that wants to forgive them of their sins, that wants to offer them peace and joy and love no matter the circumstances, even in the midst of unwanted pregnancy, and wants to let the Holy Spirit come inside of them so that they can know what the best choice is in every single situation of their lives. If you're doing nothing to lead people to Christ, to show people that there's a Savior named Jesus, then you are doing really nothing to stop abortion in our country, in our world? These are questions. I can't give you an answer. I don't know what the answer is as far as your politics. I don't know what the answer is as far as as how you 
push your politics, I should say, but I do know that these questions will get you going towards the heart of Jesus. Do you pray for the women who are considering abortions and the babies inside of them? And what are you doing to help people know, accept, and experience the love of Jesus? I just, I just want to leave you with those. I want to read you one more thing from my friend. She said, every choice that I made leading up to and to go through that was wrong, and I know it. Today, though, I know an incredible Savior, and he has given me peace. She prefaced it by saying, I wasn't a Christian before. What's the implication there? If I would have been a Christian, I wouldn't have. That's the implication. And she ends it by saying, even though I made all wrong choices, it was all bad. Every single step to get to that point was bad. I know an incredible Savior, and he has given me peace. If you don't know Jesus, you're struggling with guilt, then heed the words of my friend and know an incredible Savior who will give you peace. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that in our hearts right now, we would hear you, God. And you know that my, my fear coming into this sermon and even my fear right now is that people will analyze all of my words and go, well, I don't know what he was saying there. But instead, Lord, I just pray that they would hear from you and, and that, God, you would, you, Lord, would just speak to our hearts. Lord, I know there's probably three types of people in our room right now. There's three types of people who will, who will listen online, God. There are people who are considering abortion or other sins. And I pray, God, I really pray that you would move in them and compel them, God, by your power to not do it. Whatever it is that they, they think, well, I'll just give in to this. I'll make this choice. It's my choice. Just help them not to do it, God, because of the regret and the grief that will come and because of the tragedy that, that all sin is, Lord, and how we turn our backs on you. And God, there's, there's people in this room who cannot feel forgiveness. And they just, they always question whether or not you have really forgiven them. And they really, in some way, God, have not forgiven themselves for certain things, and I pray you just move in them now, God. And by your power and grace, God, you would help them to feel the forgiveness that they've had for so long if they're Christians. And if they're not Christians, you would lead them to a relationship with you this morning so that they can have that forgiveness, Lord. And then there's, there's others of us, Lord. And God, we want abortion to stop. We want to look like you. We want to be more like you. We want our church to be more like you, God, to, to really be the embodiment of you on earth as you describe it in your word, especially in 1 Corinthians. And, and we, we just want, we want to do things the way that you want us to do things, but it's hard, Lord. It is hard to know when to speak up and when not to speak up. It's hard to know when to be bold and when to be, when to be soft, God. It's hard to know how to interact in an ever-changing culture with these things, God, that, that more and more we are on the minority side of, Father, in our view of. And today as we think about 
as we think about, Lord, personhood beginning at conception. Lord, we recognize that we're more and more in the minority on that belief with the Christians in this room. And we more and more need your help, God, on how to interact with these topics because we do, God, we do want to see babies live and we do want their mothers, God, to be whole and to not suffer from depression and to know you as their savior, Lord, to not have the regret that abortion brings. And so, God, help us. We just pray for your help for this difficult topic to know how to respond on a daily basis, but also, God, on a collective basis. Help the church in America to know how to interact with this topic so that that abortion goes away and people come to salvation and to a relationship with you, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name.